Welcome to Punch Card Investing, a weekly show dedicated to all things value investing. Whether it be analyzing companies, pitching ideas, or discussing moves by the best investors in the world, we're trying to get one step closer to punching an investment off of our cards. Let's get started. Thank you, Intro Man. As consistent as ever, less consistent than I've been with scheduling these things, guys. I apologize for a couple weeks in a row there of having no shows. So, uh, trying to get back on the routine of things, getting the live show back up. And we have a brand new guest here with us today. We have Andrew with Capital Mindset. Welcome to the show, Andrew. And then James will be joining us as well. James, uh, we just had the, was it the third episode or the second episode of, uh, or the third episode of Firm Discussions just posted this week. So, um, yep. becoming a staple here on punch card. So I'm um, <laughs> good to have you on the live show as well, but this was a bit of a brainchild of, of yours, uh, talking about the UK stock market and potentially it's a source of many, maybe off the beaten path ideas for, for many of us, us based investors, that's for sure, or, or elsewhere across the world, because the UK market isn't obviously isn't the biggest in the world. So, um, like, like all good value investors, you're trying to find uh, wherever the great value opportunities are, maybe location agnostic to a large uh, to a large degree. So potentially there are some great ideas there. And I think the, the overarching theme here is to figure out why is the UK stock market allegedly cheap or is it cheap at all, I guess, is another question to ask. And yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. So um, that'll be kind of the, the theme of this show. Before we get into that, of course, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And, and, and also all the other content we'll be posting during the week as well, not just these live shows. Of course, it's great if you can join us live because we love having audience feedback and questions that we can get to during the show. But if you are, but even if you aren't here for the live show, you can obviously watch the uh, the recorded version, and also uh, check out all of our other content, including James's show for firm discussions, as well as Contrarian Corner with Mike Sharp. Those have been quite well received so far, and uh, we expect to have some more content coming in the future that is uh, beyond just the live show. So thanks everyone for that. Be sure to subscribe. Check out all the links in the, the description below, including the affiliate links to share sites and seeking alpha. You can get discounts there for their premium services and it goes a long way towards helping the channel. And that's always appreciated. Now, uh, with all that said, um, James, I think I'm going to kind of hand the reins to you here because I am no expert on the UK market and I would like to believe you are. So I'll, I'll <laughs> leave it at that. Where, where do we start this whole discussion? Uh, I guess maybe the first question to try and figure out is, uh, is the UK market cheap and how do you define cheap? Well, uh, well, first thing I just wanted to mention on um, when you're talking about other shows, we do actually have an upcoming episode of Firm Discussions featuring Andrew talking about a UK listed stock. So we're, it's, this should be quite a nice sort of build up to that <laughs> as well. A teaser. Um, yeah, a little teaser, yeah. And uh, yeah, I thought it might be good before we um, start looking at valuations and so on of, of different markets, may, maybe just for people who aren't familiar with the, the the uk markets uh what they are you know sort of which there there's a, there are sort of a couple of them um and there's sort of different levels within them with sort of listing levels as, as well and then there's some indices so like if you're looking at trying to judge um how to value the uk stock market you generally that's based on an index and there's we've got a few different options as well so i wanted to introduce those first so um 
Principally on the markets front, we've got two markets. There's the main market, which has a standard and a premium listing. And there's quite that's a sort of crucial difference there because the um, in order to be listed in a, one of the FTSE inde- um, indices, like the FTSE 100 or FTSE 250, you have to be a premium listed company. And so there is a distinction there. They have to pay a bit of extra money and uh, get some... I think provided a little bit more information. Um, is it a huge you know. fee, or what? Um, it's quite, it's quite a bit, but it's also more. It's, it's probably more just that they have to provide a lot more information sure. um, in their accounts and stuff like that. Uh, perhaps so it, it becomes a, a bigger burden on the company to to right. to get that kind of premium listing. Um, so there are examples, quite a lot of examples of companies that would be a sufficient market cap to appear in an index. But I haven't paid the money to and, and gone through the process of of doing so, so they're not eligible to be included in the index. But um, yeah. So there's uh, the main market. Which those two we've got the also got the alternative investment market, which is often when people are talking about like you know looking for small cap value sort of opportunities. They're often on the aim market or the uh, the alternative investment market. And these typically are sort of like below a norm, normally in the tens to hundreds of millions of pounds, um, and certainly sort of below a billion pounds. Um, and pounds to dollars is about, uh, I think there's $1.2, $1.20 to a pound or something right now, uh, just for reference, because we're going to be talking quite a bit in pounds. Um, but yeah, then. The two moving on to indices, we have the FTSE 100, which is the one that everybody thinks of when they think about the UK stock market. It's the hundred, effectively the hundred biggest companies listed in the UK. And just to give you a few stats about it, um, its average market cap is 19 billion pounds. So probably quite a bit smaller than something like the S&P 500 average. Um, and it ranges between 1 billion and 164 billion pounds. And I think the median is 7.8 billion. So pretty, pretty small. So the actual, yeah, the middle company is going to be below billion, uh, 10 billion pounds. Um, but some of the really big boys on there are things like Shell, you've got the really big oil titans, you've got AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, some of the big pharmaceutical companies, and these, these are the kind of constituents, uh, big banks and insurers and so on. So it, it tends as to a, sort of be... As a point of reference, uh, the average for the S&P 500, the average market cap is somewhere closer to like $80 billion based on a quick calculation. <laughs> okay, so, so close, yeah. close to the max. You take out, if you take out like Apple and all those, maybe it yeah, I'm sure. a little bit. But... <laughs> I'm sure when you remove all the the, uh, the couple trillion caps, then uh, that'll bring it down, but um, quite a bit bigger, obviously. Um, but, but go on, please. Yeah, but it's, so it's kind of fairly it's fairly seen as old, it's sort of characterized as being like older world stocks. It's a bit like um, maybe you'd, characterize the canadian or australian stock market as well there's quite a lot of big mining and sort of commodities companies on there sure um glencore or so on anglo-american um uh, bhp though i think that's now just i think that's moved to uh being just australian listed but 
Uh, yeah, so quite a lot of big, slow-moving um, old-world companies, but then some uh, sort of high-tech pharmaceutical and whatever kind of business, but we don't have any of the big tech names like you have in, in the US, you know, you, you um, the fang stocks or whatever. Um, but in terms of like, and, and as a result, kind of in terms of return over the last 20 years, if you were to look just at the FTSE 100, it's own, I don't think this factors in dividends. It pays us about about 3.9% dividend yield right now. And has I think have been around about the 4% for most of those 20 years. But if you take just excluding that, the index itself has returned um, around about 90%. So not not amazing, certainly when you compare it to what something's like the S&P 500's done. But that is a pretty substantial dividend yield compared to the S&P. S&P, I think, isn't it closer to like 2% or something like that? It's yeah. quite a bit lower. So compounded over Yeah, it probably I wouldn't be. I think it, the gap closes quite a bit if you were to um, reinvest the dividends along right. the way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still just on, just on the companies appreciating themselves, capital appreciation. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's not been an amazing return over the last 20 years. Certainly not the sort of 10% year or whatever you average you'd expect for the, that Buffett would say about the S and B 500 or something. Mm -hmm. Um, the current PE ratio is about 13. I think I was trying to find the exact, um, I think that I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with that one, but the, um, cyclically, cyclically adjusted uh, price to earnings ratio, the CAPE or Schiller PE, um, I think is, and this is where I'm quite not quite sure because there's some, it was hard to pin down and get the exact figures for some of these, but it's sort of closer to sort of 19 or 20. And I think that's because um, with some of these old world stocks like the oil majors and stuff like that bp shell they've had really record profits in the last year and so it's pulled up the earnings mm. um above perhaps where they would have um historically been so when you start looking at this sort of average cyclically adjust we're kind of at a cyclical peak in terms of earnings is what, is what i'm mm -hmm. alluding to there um but yeah so that's that's the FTSE 100 fairly mediocre returns fairly big names there are some really cheap companies in there i mean i as an example i i own aviva which is an insurance company and legal in general is similar both both of them are FTSE 100 constituents and they trade at something like a nine percent dividend yield each and okay. they have um and if you include share buybacks it's something like 12 or 13 percent um total sort of yield and just the, the valuations are just absolutely crazy um they so you can get and they're like the top insurer in the uk aviva is the top insurer in the uk second um property and casualty insurer in canada you know it's it's a really big um in really big successful business and yet it's trading at such a are cheap people, valuation has it always kind of been around that valuation like like no no it's 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 would historically, I think, trade around about the five percent dividend yield sort of level. Mm, okay. So it really has. It's probably around about half of where you would expect. Well, expect what uh, are, are people expecting? Like a decline in earnings, some sort of crackdown, or, or something that would that would justify. Well, it's. I mean, markets got spooked last um, October with the the UK had like a mini 
budget um, wobble, and oh, there true. was a, there was like a an LDR liability driven investment sort of liquidation <laughs> uh, spiral that occurred where sure. they had these they had these products, and it wasn't. It wasn't so. It was something that did impact um, Aviva and so on as well, but uh, they were better capitalized than perhaps some of the smaller pension funds and insurers that um, that were exposed to it. But anyway, that kind of risk, that tail risk there, that's, that's sort of looming because of the fact that, um, and we'll get onto this a bit later, because of the fact that pension funds and insurers have been forced to take on basically most of their assets consist of bonds. Uh, they don't really have much in the way of equities, um, and this was a government-mandated kind of uh, thing from, by regulation. Uh, they've actually been prevented from owning equities in a, in a many cases. Uh, for so, are, so, so people are are people just factoring in like big interest rate risk? Then is that what what's going pretty, on? Pretty pretty much with some of these yeah. things, yeah, um, is is where I would I would put it for those specific cases. But right, but yeah, I'd, I've not seen any owning the company and reintroducing I've not seen anything that particularly concerns me on that front, do, so it does seem a bit anomalous. But Do they have to hold UK bonds, or can they be international treasuries? Oh, they, is, they have an international mix, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, even with, because I'm just wondering if there were some other risks. I don't know. Um, the other possibility is that they've uh, had a massive markdown on bonds that they were holding beforehand, like when the interest rates Kind of the same thing that happened to banks. I, like, right. They hold all hmm. these to maturity. They shouldn't have any liquidation risk. But I wonder if that's something that's factoring in as well. Probably, yeah. I mean, they've so they they did have a, a loss in 2022 as a result of um, this. But in in this particular case, most of it was mitigated by the fact that their liabilities, insurance liabilities, and things like that it was all duration matched and so these things sort of went down similarly as well so interest rates go moving higher meant that it was um easier to cover the insurance liabilities and things so they they the way they were capitalized was then dropped and so there was only only ends up being i think a couple of billion or something like that that was the unrealized losses that um overall once you sort of netted out those two those two components but on like a cash basis the the company is uh, very, you know, it's generating an awful lot of cash, um, and at s- such that it can pay out a high and increasing dividend, and still conduct share share buybacks and and do acquisitions, which it's been doing, and all the rest of it. So there's there's not really nothing has been realised, and because it's an insurer rather than a bank, um, there's no opportunity for things like a bank run or anything like that. So it's just uh, swings of the swings of the asset prices and things, but. But yeah, having a look at um, so the once you move past the the FTSE 100 to the top 100 uh, company largest companies in the UK, you've then got the FTSE 250, and this is where I was kind of saying where you get some companies that fit the criteria in terms of market cap and stuff, but they're not on the premium listing. So there are some it, which ones end up in this list is a bit um, mixed, but. Um, yeah, this this is sort of like so. Just to give you yeah some of the figures, the average market cap or the mean is one point three billion pounds, and it ranges between one hundred and thirty million to four point two billion pounds, and the median is one point one billion pounds. 
Um, the average Cape ratio over the last 30 years has been 25. So kind of fairly similar, I guess, to how the S&P 500s maybe been. They, I know it oscillates, but it's certainly around about the same kind of level as the S&P 500. Um, and as, but as of Jan this year, and I think it probably has come down since as well, um, it was 18.7. So quite significantly below the historical average. <laughs> and I've actually got, um, I'll, I'll show you some, put some charts up in a second. But the quite interesting thing with the, SM, with the, uh, the FTSE 250 is, you know how I was talking about the fairly mediocre 90% returns from the FTSE 100. The FTSE 250 over the same period has done over a 250% sure. return. So wow. it's, and, and if I'll just, I'll just, um, if you, yeah, there was, no, just, there was 90%, right? So yeah, so it's wow. Yeah, this is is quite phenomenal. I'll show you. Maybe if I just um, share my screen, I'd imagine that's not carried by a few players because then I feel like the one hundred would have done better. Is it, is it just a broad move? Like um, tons of little holdings that have all done well. I don't know. That seems kind of unlikely. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll break. It might become clearer when I then show you how what the the smallest ones done as well, so we can yeah, kind of get a bit of a would. picture of the where where being sort of in the middle seems to have really done it well. So I'll just um, can you? Yeah, I got it right one? here. What are we looking at? So this is the. This is on the um, London Stock Exchange website, the FTSE 250. So we've got along the bottom here, we've got the FTSE 100 giving us our 90% return. In blue, we've got the FTSE 250, which up until we had the big crash in 2020 was actually outperforming the S&P 500 by quite a margin. Um, and then since then, it's kind of, it kind of caught up a bit in sort of, up to 2022 and then when the market fell in 2022 and the s&p since has recovered the FTSE 250 hasn't so it's kind of lagging and this is where the kind of valuation gap is at the moment when i said about the cape ratio being 18.7 i see um or something else actually that was quite yeah this is uh this is from earlier this it's not an amazing let's see if i can zoom in a little bit um <laughs> Without, without paying for seeing yeah, how yeah, it works, all right. So yeah, we're looking at the Cape valuation rainbow. So showing kind of the rain. yeah. So this is kind of showing you the bands because you can see that you know even though I said it was the average has been twenty five, it's kind of oscillated quite a bit. And this is the same thing you see with something like the S and P five hundred as well. Um, but you, this these kind of bands give you an idea of um, if it's moving, if it's mainly sitting within this yellow band that's sort of like it's fair value you could say it's sort of historical average and then um at the moment this was a january and i think it's probably gone a bit lower now um we're down into sort of the green where it's starting to get cheap so i think it gives another one where it's like uh it's probably getting into the cheap and heading towards the, the very cheap at the moment that's for um, the FTSE 250 yeah the FTSE 250 I don't have the same one for the FTSE 100, unfortunately, but um, but it, yeah, it's it's similarly uh, a similar sort of level. And then, oh, I have actually got the 
S&P 500 here as well. Um, this is the Schiller P for the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see um, it is historically quite high at the moment. Yep. It's probably been, I mean, this is going back quite a long way, but it's probably been closer to the kind of level that the FTSE 100 trades at. Um, yeah, around a 15. In the past, around about a 15, which yeah, is... Yeah, that's the benchmark I use is around a 15 P is uh, like normal, I guess. But mm. there's lots of factors that can change it either way. So yeah, the, so you might be thinking, why is the why is the FTSE 250 um, trading at a higher multiple, and uh, why has it performed so well? And I think some of the some of the answers to this have probably come down to just the company size. Um, as I kind of said, they're kind of like small to mid cap. So you've got like the the lowest was 130 million pounds uh, in the index, but the largest is 4.2 billion. So they're kind of in. I mean, when you compare it to some of the tech giants and so on, even the 10 billion pound companies are probably small caps to them. But um, right. But yeah, in, in the UK, in <laughs> looking at the UK market, the definition these would probably be defined as like the small to mid cap sort of range, and that's they're they're usually sort of domestically focused so um they might be sort of retailers or you know restaurant chain there's and there's lots of technology and all sorts of other companies in it but they're they're often quite domestically focused um companies certainly more so than the FTSE 100 which is a really sort of global um as I sort of said commodities financials and all the rest of it much more global than um, perhaps the two FTSE 250. So it's just kind of like um, it's that smaller with room to grow um, as, aspect of the market. I think it, it's certainly helping, but it's still they're still big enough to sort of be have a much lower probability of bankruptcy. And this is where it kind of it gets a little bit interesting. Is if I add in um, if, if so, as I was saying, there's if we then could look at the smaller end of the spectrum and the AIM market, the there's an, a FTSE AIM 100 as well. Um, 100 index. And as you can see, this has not done well at all <laughs> over the last yeah, 20 way, years. Way behind. You've actually lost, you've lost money. And this just sort of is trying to illustrate here the, once you get really small, your bankruptcy risk um, increases to such an extent that it kind of wipes out your the gains that could be made from having outside outsized um, growth in your company. So I kind of think that small to mid cap seems to be like the the sweet spot for getting your really good performance outsized returns, but um, with the lower sort of risk level. That's kind of what I've determined I'm, from. It- is that, do you think that's a result of just kind of the like policy climate? Because the the reputation that I you know I should say the bias that I have like against the the UK market is it's even more regulated than than say the US markets. Not that the US markets aren't regulated, as they're plenty regulated too. But uh, I've always I've always understood that the UK has a lot more regulations to get through in, the, in its business climate. Maybe that's a, a misnomer, but that's just as an outsider, that's my understanding. And maybe that punishes smaller <laughs> businesses even more than, you know, 
if it was a more free environment, perhaps, I don't know. That's just my, my hunch is any, any um, of what I'm saying, does any of that ring kind of true or is that well, your feeling? The, the interesting thing with the eight, cause you know, I was saying how the FTSE 250 is quite domestically focused. Sure. Well, the, um, the aim index actually has an awful lot of international companies because it's kind of, um, interesting. Okay. It's become a, a sort of hotbed for, companies that are too small to let's say quite a lot of us companies on there for instance they're too small to affordably get themselves listed on like that at one of the us exchanges like the nasdaq or something it just was prohibitively expensive mm. and so the their only option if they're in the us would be to trade over the counter and so this is the aim is sort of seen as an alternative to that so you've got companies like Sumero enterprises which is like i think 80 percent of its revenue comes from the, the us um and is headquartered in in the u.s right. um interesting you've got tight yeah tiny tiny build which i mentioned helicopter headquartered in right. Del- delaware in the u.s and is a global company but um yeah yeah right that was the first episode of firm discussions by the way if anyone's yeah, interested has exactly an in yeah and then there's um i uh is iwg a, a name listed company as well uh, andrew uh great question they're on I don't think they're aim, but let me just check. Might be a bit big for aim, but um, but yeah, there's quite a few. Um, I think I think um, I might be wrong in saying this, but I think Boohoo was quite famously an aim one, um, and it is one that sort of stayed. But yeah, we, basically, there's there's quite a, there's quite a lot of examples of um, international companies and quite a lot of US companies as well that list on aim because there are alternative there isn't really a small cap like or, or a micro cap alternative in uh the us for them really they'd just be over the counter thomas in the chat says he went through every single business on aim as a treasure hunt i found a no treasure <laughs> <laughs> he's not looking very hard <laughs> there are a few there are a few but they they don't they, they have a lot of hairs on them quite often, or certainly their valuations imply bankruptcy um as we were as we were describing um but yeah so but that's interesting that, so the mix of it, it, it's like a, a a not last resort but second resort if they can't get into the list the they can't get listed on maybe a US exchange or some yeah. exchange that they actually want they come over here to the aim and uh and that's their that's their it's alternative place and they there is you know there are some advantage. The reason why there's liquidity and you know why they can get capital in the aim as well is that it has um, there are inheritance tax advantages. So basically, if you buy aim listed companies in the UK, uh, you that money then uh, is protected from inheritance tax if you do it right. So, but other can, but other exchanges aren't. No, so it's like an incentive to try and get people yeah. investing in smaller companies. Um, so it's a bit like it's the same kind of thing happens if you were to if you had enough money and you can invest in like venture capital startups and stuff. It's also sure. kind of protected from um, inheritance taxes. So it's kind of a way for the more ordinary people without a lot of money to to try and shield themselves without <laughs> I, being I, like an accredited investor and so on. I feel like there are a lot of unintended consequences there, but <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, but that, that's I'm kind of mean, like. Sorry, go on. I was just. As I say, I'm assuming that the reporting requirements for these different exchanges are different. So, like the AIM doesn't have the same reporting 
Mm, exactly uh, yeah requirements for so yeah that, that's like the one thing where it's like we're not otc but we're not going to require you to have the same standard as these other markets that... yeah it's it's not because it just some things would just be too onerous for a company that's like um we're talking there are companies on there with like market caps of 10 million pounds or something you know so yeah. if we're talking and that might you know it kind of means that if they're let's say they're doing um some might be doing like just 10 million in revenue in a year or something to then be paying. I have no idea how, how expensive things like the NASDAQ are, but it, it certainly be probably end up being quite a bit more than their, <laughs> than their revenue for the year, just to mm-hmm. pay, just to pay that and to try and main to, to pay for all of the um, audit fees to the, for the sort of standards that would be required and all the rest of it. So it, it kind of just becomes too onerous for them to, to access public, um, public capital so uh, public markets so yeah but obviously and as um touching on what the member of the audience mentioned uh yeah it's you might be getting if you get the gems you might be getting um some outside returns but there's obviously a much higher probability of picking one that's going to go bankrupt um so and this is what if you just take the a bucket of companies um like the the top 100 companies on the aim index then you're not going to do very well. So it's an index investing approach at this level is not going to work. It's very much a, a stock pickers domain um, investing in, in the AIM market. Um, yeah. One of the, so, the theories I have just, just as an FYI, or just a quick point I want to make is even within the US, if you look at the breakdown of the SPY returns this year, it's very mega cap weighted. Yep. And so on a valuation basis, and I know I like look at Yardini research. I don't know if you guys ever use his website. It's an MC. It's just real quick way to take information, you know, kind of look at a graph, but he breaks out, you know, the relative um, valuations for like US small, mid and large cap. And large cap also is very much, I think, um, over, I don't want to say overvalued, but they're, on the relative valuation basis, they're very much um, expensive. Yeah, <laughs> and Compared to I, the rest. and I think my I have just my two theories are one is people have no idea what's going to happen, but they know that people are going to buy iPhones, so they just <laughs> they go and they're like, "Well, I'll buy Apple." I'm not, I don't hold any Apple. I'm not a fan of that kind of um, mindset. But um, and. The other is maybe like, I, I think that's it or that they have lots of cash and little debt so that they can weather a storm and potentially like buy these companies that maybe get hurt if, if there's bad economics coming up and maybe that's how they're also looking at UK stocks is saying, I'm not super sure about these. Um, I could be wrong though. That's kind of like my initial read. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I mean, I'll get on a little bit about the composition of um, ownership of UK listed shares versus the the US because there's some quite stark differences. Um, let's just see if there was anything else to mention here. Uh, no, I think yeah, might move on to on what, what I just mentioned there. Then the ownership. So, um, in Let's that maybe let's just as a benchmark have a look at this is this is what I managed to find for the US. So 
I don't know exactly how. Um, this is supposedly from the Federal Reserve's financial zoom accounts. Zoom in a little bit so we can read that a little, little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, the Federal Reserve's financial accounts of the United States. They pulled the data out of there, apparently. So hopefully um, it's accurate, but <laughs> feel free to, if you've, if you've got a better source. But it seems like the, the point they're trying to make here is that US, there's much more of a culture of investing in the US and households, household ownership of shares or sort of individuals' ownership of shares is is a large part of the market because you're sort of making the point here that Households directly own sort of 37.7%. Then through mutual funds, they own another 21.8%. Then there's sort of 6.4% through ETFs, private pensions, 5.4%, and so on. And then sort of foreign ownership, crucially here, is just 15.1%, um, which is which I found quite interesting. Um, yeah, I'm wondering for the households, how they're, is they're separating out mutual funds but households often own mutual funds. So I feel like there's almost some double accounting going on here. You know. Or- well, I think this is what he's saying here. So he's sort of saying it is households that own equities represented. The next largest holder is mutual funds as a, and households own mutual funds. So he's trying to make the oh, point that actually the ownership of like US equities is all of these dark green ones added together I, um, I see. by okay. individuals. Yeah, sure. So it's actually a very substantial part of the market is is owned by u.s citizens um right right so i guess a a way to read this would be individuals or 37.7 percent of u.s equities are individuals buying single stocks or like individual stocks i think that's right yeah versus okay and then so yeah with this kind of in mind then if we take a look at the uk it's a very different picture so let's try and zoom in again. Um, so this is from the Office of National Statistics, so official data from 31st of December 2020. And here you can see that where the other one was in the US, it was just 15.1% was foreign ownership. 56.3% is foreign ownership wow. in the UK. So <laughs> barely barely anybody really is, is actually investing in the stock market um, very little there's there's much less of a culture in uh, that's on a much smaller you know market cap basis as well yeah market cap per capita i guess individuals (laughs) is only 12 percent um unit trusts which is kind of going to be fitting into the mutual fund um bracket there as well 7.4 percent and then What's really changed, and I'll get, it, I'll show you some his figures from the past as well, is that pension funds um, and insurance companies together only own about four percent um, of the UK market. And historically, it used to be closer to forty percent uh, back in the nineteen wow. nineties, and then there was basically government regulation that came in with the collapse of, I think, one. I think it was um it was actually I've got it here uh Robert Maxwell so I believe um just for the connection here this is the father of Ghislaine Maxwell of um <laughs> of notoriety um so he basically died mysteriously and his company um then found out had a massive hole in their pension fund and and lots of people 
didn't have their pensions, lots of employees didn't have have their pensions covered. Ouch. So as a result of this, the governments have went crazily overboard and regulated the hell out of it. And then we can see what happened here from this from this graph here. So UK pension funds retreat from UK equities. We went from back in 1997, about half of just just over half of UK of, of assets in UK pension funds were in UK equities. And then this has just been on a downward trend from then. The the non-UK equity seems to remain fairly constant. So it'll be like, you know, US and global um, stocks and so on. But the contribution the uh, to bonds has absolutely ballooned and just re- basically replaced all of the UK equities. So the, the composition, if you were to look at this um, graph back in the 1990s, would have been very much... these would have been occupying you know close to 40 percent here and and rest of the world and all these other sort of components would have made up um (laughs) a much smaller share so and that's been been a big rotation yeah given that data with you know that amount of outflow from insurance and pension which used to be half the market it's kind of that's it actually makes the returns that we have seen like way more impressive if you ask me i'm sure there are other factors that would yeah influence that but you know that's a huge player being kind of pushed out for one yeah, reason or another it's really interesting this like, kind of yeah and, and it's, it's kind of the pretty good data too uh, it's good that they have it um <laughs> it's fun to look at that's for sure yeah it's been uh, an interesting journey this i had a few of these pieces like i'd read this article before but i sort of pieced together a few other things this afternoon to get a bit some good stuff to show but it's um so yeah it's kind of the, the crucial thing, and I think this is what they're sort of going to in this article, is that as with the US and, and having a like a domestic kind of backbone to the market to sort of shore it up um, is really crucial. And that's what provides, allows, I mean, we all know about um, companies IPOing and uh, crazy multiples and so on, but yeah. that is an important part of the function of a stock market to be able to allow companies, to attract companies to list and Maybe yeah, people who invest in them don't get the best deal, but it allows companies to raise ca- raise capital. It makes in this case, it's making the US a much more attractive destination for companies to IPO, as we saw with Arm, which is a British company, choosing to list in the US instead of the UK, and managed to get a a fairly uh, colossal <laughs> valuation. I think it was like fifty or sixty billion dollars or something, and it, I think I think it would have it would have immediately been in the fairly high up in the FTSE 100 index if it had listed in the UK. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of like the the rotation we've seen here. So quite, um, I, quite I incredible. A, that's a massive a, rotation in 25 years. We're not talking about a, like 100. That's a, that's, that's a lot. Um, but go ahead, Andrew. I just have a question because actually it's interesting looking at this. And now it makes a lot more sense than we heard about um, – UK pension funds potentially blowing up and you see how much they have in bonds. Mm. Yeah. And I'm assuming they had to take on leverage because you, it's very hard as a pension fund or any kind of long-term fund to be in bonds and be able to pay out sustainably to your members, I would think. Well, this is basically what happened. So all effectively what's happened is um, all final salary pensions or defined benefit pensions if you want to call them have effectively ended uh, there's mm. no companies are offering them anymore because they can't get a high enough return 
over the last 20 years or whatever as rates have come down on bonds and and they haven't been able to invest in equities um they've not been able to get a sufficient return to cover them so they've been a lot of companies have been in deficit with their pension funds mm-hmm. and so they've been trying to offload them um to sort of bulk purchase annuity companies like uh, legal in general is a particularly large example of this but the way these um large sort of life insurance companies often do it um in order to get sufficient return uh, they sell these ldi liability driven investment products and what they're effectively doing is as you described they're using the they're leveraging um the bonds by <laughs> they, they there's this sort of cycle where they they r- put right derivatives on uh the bonds th- that they hold and then <laughs> using them as collateral but then <laughs> they start getting when we had the sudden crashing of the uh bond prices the 10 particularly like the 10 year um uk gilts that kind of was the particularly hardest hit one um when they started crashing in price as the yields sort of jumped up one percent in like a, a few days um the derivatives couldn't sort of catch up and we ended up with uh margin calls and then they, what was this is what the reason why we ended up with the particular sort of spike was then that the what did they have to use to, to generate cash um what did they have to sell to generate cash to cover the margin calls? They had to sell the exact same bonds that were being used oh. as collateral <laughs> for the margin oh. calls. So it so it ended up with this sort of downward <laughs> spiral. Um, and then that was when the Bank of England had to kind of inject some, had to basically just start saying, right, we're going to buy these bonds off you and we're going to pay you know, a higher price in order to stop, stop the spiral. Um, so that was effectively what had to happen. They had to inject some cash into the to market to stop it but um wow. it just shows you the vulnerability these they they can they can manage fine they can manage fine from a slow movement up of interest rates they're sort of designed to do that but if you get a sudden jump um of like a one percent in a couple of weeks or something um that's enough to to basically tip them over the edge and you end up with these spirals so this is kind of what we saw in last october um, so yeah, it's quite quite exposed, and it's it's kind of as this is all what's been had to happen because they've been reaching for yield, you know, with these these things. So if we do end up moving towards a an environment with more reasonable interest rate levels, um, where they don't have to start doing these kind of things, like a lot of these pension funds that were previously in deficits have now suddenly moved into a surplus um, mm. again, and they're all trying to offload them and sell them to life insurance and so on. Um, and this is all happening because they uh, <laughs> interest rates have moved up to more rational levels. So, um, yeah, but there's some interest. Just wanted to finally sort of finish here on um, by saying that we perhaps uh, all, all of this stuff came about because of regulation, but with the sort of flagging uh, UK stock market, and when I say sort of flagging, like the the top one top 100 companies if that's what you want to sort of measure uh, obviously we've said the FTSE 250 has actually shown that there are still great opportunities in the UK um, and have been over the last 20 years but if you were to just go for the biggest companies which is typically kind of how a, a country is measured the stock market's performance is measured um, we we've been we've been lagging and um, a lot of this because we haven't really had 
any major we haven't really had the the tech ipos and all the other sort of things that have injected growth into the um top 100 you know companies list uh, so the FTSE 100 hasn't been able, hasn't been able to get these sort of fast growing companies that, that perhaps the us has had uh, with some of these tech giants and so on so in order to sort of increase the attractiveness and to try and allow some of the smaller companies perhaps to um that have the higher higher prospects to to think about start um listing ipoing in the uk uh, and to increase that sort of attractiveness of the market they are now trying to reverse course with their regulation a little bit they've now allowed um they're passing a law i believe at the moment to allow insurers to put something like five percent of their assets back into uk equities with a particular kind of focus on earlier stage um companies as well and there's there's other sort of measures coming into force to try and encourage um and try and get um individual ownership of equities um increased as well so sort of Hmm tax breaks and various sort of things and other initiatives coming forth. So we might have reached, we might have reached peak uh, regulation and we might be about to, to sort of get a, what's previously been a headwind might start to turn into a bit of a tailwind for the UK market. So that's kind of where I thought it'd be a good place to, to end it. Um, and no, yeah, it's really interesting on the deregulation what are your thoughts on, because I'm not very, you know, I, I live in the U.S., so I don't know how the average U.K. citizen thinks about this, but let's say the incentives get pushed out for individuals to invest more. And we know in the U.S. that's a big, like, what do we call it, um, indiscriminate bid. Like, there's always people just buying the S&P 500, which obviously mm. is like, but if I... don't know about I, always. <laughs> but well, most well I'm just saying, like, like every two weeks, my 401k, I just buy no matter what's going on. Sure. I yeah, I give it. Okay, I get it. Yeah. But, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a reason to be bullish the US. Yeah. But that's part of what we're saying is that there would be a drive for more UK citizens um, to purchase if, if you push up these incentives. Sure. Why would they buy UK indexes instead of the US? Or, or is the mentality over there they would buy the UK indexes? Well, I think it would. They'd have to be incentives to do it. So, like they kind of had with the the tax breaks um, mm-hmm. for the AIM listed shares, for instance. They're talking about. Uh, so we have these things called ISAs in the UK, individual savings accounts, um, where effectively you can you have an allowance that you can put twenty thousand pounds a year into this account, and it's completely then protected from all tax. So you don't get capital gains, you don't pay any tax on dividends and everything like that. So it's to encourage people to um yeah, invest in to these things. But so effectively what they're talking about doing is um having a another type of ISA. It, this is one f- idea they floated, um, where if you'd have a higher allowance, so let's say twenty five thousand or thirty thousand or whatever they're gonna set it to. Um, but only if you're entirely restricted to investing in UK listed companies. So this would be like a way of them mm-hmm. trying to pull some money back into the market by inc- giving these sort of incentives for people to do so. No, it's, it's interesting because, uh, as you know, like uh, IWG, one of the things that I find interesting about it is that they're actually considering moving 
from being on the London Exchange and then upload this thing on the NYSE. <laughs> and so like there's going to be an immediate in my opinion well and that's not there, there's a lot of other reasons i like it they're they're executing well and they're trading cheap but um it, that's the one thing i've i've struggled with is uk stocks are cheap um i've never i, I actually always looked at the FTSE 100 so it's interesting to bring up the 250 hmm. um i didn't realize but um they're they're cheap but what's the like the thing you always gotta look for is what's the catalyst that's gonna make them at least close the valuation gap a little bit. I mean, like I think we're almost at record levels in terms of a valuation um, difference between U.S. and U.K. stocks at the moment. Hmm. Obviously, U.S. we're going SPY versus FTSE 100. I think that's what most people look at. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it's, yeah, it's, and I do think kind of like yeah, it's. Part of that is perhaps, as we've sort of said, there's some just justification there because of the different sort of types of companies. But yeah, there are definitely some some very undervalued companies in the FTSE 100 as well. Um, um, as we've sort of been saying, like, um, <laughs> yeah, I think Phil makes a good point actually in the comments there um, that uh, most people in the the UK probably who do invest probably are putting their money into things like the S&P 500 instead so <laughs> yeah it's uh, i think that's I think that's definitely true phil um and what? so yeah trying trying to get a bit of more of a mentality of of um but i think just i think just generally we we have such a low participation sort of rate um mm-hmm. anyway that if we could just get um people those you know educational initiatives or whatever kind of like stuff like it's it's so much more part of the culture to to invest in the stock market in the US isn't it you know if you can kind of if we can try and generate some of that culture which i think what they're trying to to do a bit as well um through advertisements or govern you know education initiatives whatever kind of stuff um then yeah that could potentially have a positive impact but it, rem- it remains to be seen but James uh, yeah. when you're looking at do, do you filter, I mean, kind of given what we just went over, where it seems like the magic's kind of in the middle, do you filter for that sort of market cap then um, when you're looking at these stocks? Do you try to, do you set like a maximum market cap or anything like that uh, for your initial initial search? No, I I haven't. Um, I do have some, I do, well, I do have one company um, in the FTSE 100, which is Aviva, as I mentioned. Right. Um, but it does, it has, ended up being actually just coincidentally that most of the companies I own fall within, even if they're not in the FTSE 250, they fall within that sort of market cap range. Um, they're probably around, uh, most of the companies I own are in the hundreds of millions sort of mark, just below a billion. Um, okay. sort of seem, so they, they've got enough financial clout to keep their head above the water and really minimize the bankruptcy risk. But um, yeah, they're still small enough to have substantial sort of potential upside and so on, a, a gross potential there. Um, but a lot of it comes down to more sort of special situation things as well, just valuation. Maybe maybe there they might not be businesses that would be positioned to grow massively anyway. Um, right, but sure. But they're just trading at what I deem to be like half of the, the book value or something, yeah. Uh, Thomas asked, what was the thesis for Aviva since we mentioned it a few times? I think you mentioned it some, uh, probably a couple months ago when you were on 
another live show with me, James. But uh, what was yeah, that I can. Well, I mean, just on a as we sort of mentioned a bit earlier, the um, the valuation is incredibly cheap. The, you know, you're getting you're getting something like a nine percent dividend yield at the moment. You're getting they they did another three hundred million pounds of in share buybacks this year, and there's something that they're probably going to continue doing going forward um while the while the stock's this cheap um i just i like the management team they, so the company to give you a bit of an idea it's um previously it's been through a bit of a period of tran- uh, transformation over the last few years um they the current ceo i think came in in 2020 and has kind of turned to the company um it's consolidated it reduced it down to just its core profit centers so it previously had operations all over the world at um singapore lots of east european china business all sorts of all all over Um, a lot of european ones italy france um poland other sort of places and they basically just um but all of those distributed aspects of the business were only contributed about 25 percent of the actual um, net assets of the company. So they effectively, they divested all of that and then gave all of that back to shareholders. So we had like a, um, they did it through a, (coughs) a, a a B, a B share scheme. They basically issued a new type of shares and then um, converted those all into, into cash and just gave that out as a distribution um to everybody. so everybody basically got like a a pound a share back um from the share price and then they reduced the share count that uh, consolidated it down so you got they gave they gave back a base close to i think it was close to five billion including share buybacks and things like that um, of capital and it reduced their yeah so there was a really good consolidation i liked the uh some prior ceos before that had been much more sort of eager egocentric um empire building in their approach and wanting to build this massive global business and so the current ceo now is much more focused on yeah after that and so on and after that as you can see here they saw a big old boost of free cash flow is that temporary uh so it's it's misleading um it's they it's very with an insurer like this um it's very difficult to use uh, RFRS accounting to really judge it. Um, they use Solvency okay. two uh, mainly for so most of their, you know, the, the easier numbers to follow. And they have things like cash remittances as well, which is the mm. cash that their um, subsidiaries effectively have paid up to the the parent group, okay. um, which does nothing. The, the sort of parent at the top does nothing except um, corporate sort of stuff. Um, all of the other components are seen as subsidiaries. And so it just gets like effectively dividends paid up to it. And so that gives you an idea of what the real sort of cash flow that's able to be distributed um, and okay. deployed is. And so, um, but yeah, the, the free cash flow numbers you saw there are skewed because basically what happened was when they sold, divested all of the about five billion pounds worth of, of um, subsidiaries, they then took all of that and they gave it to their. Uh, investment management arm and invested it all into um financial short-term financial um instruments uh short-term bonds and things like that three months or year-long um government bonds and things and 
when they did that, it skewed the numbers and it made it look like um, their cash flows from operations of that for that year were like negative. That were reduced by five billion or something mm. like that. Oh, I think it actually. I'm probably misremembering. I think it was seven and a half billion actually. The total proceeds from all the divestments. Um, so they took that seven and a half billion, and then the next year when they then took it out in order to pay, I think it looked like their financial arm had just generated out of thin air seven and a half billion pounds, and so like it it kind of skewed the numbers the other way. And yeah, so that's, they, what was, that's what I was asking. You, like, is yeah, it real or not? You, it's not that's not real no but the but realistically i think um you can it, the cash remittances are a better give you a better idea um and, yeah but i did uh, i did see they you know <laughs> i looked at we we're looking at total assets and and long term debt both have substantially decreased in the last few years so mm. it, it, definitely, it definitely is consistent yeah. with what what you were describing and that's why they uh they screen real poorly huh like their revenue growth, yeah. bring, like it looks bad. Like usually uh, I don't want to buy a company if I'm screening that's like, oh, they've gone from 28 million to 18 mil, uh, billion, 28 billion to 18 billion in revenues. Usually, you know. Uh, that's or, it, like, yeah. And this is why I don't really use screens so much because, um, or if I do, I kind of do it just on very simple things like a market cap basis mm-hmm. or something because, it all pretty much all the companies I own, if you were to look at a screen, wouldn't look favorable on, on various <laughs> metrics because it's often that's where the value is sort of hidden. It's um it's uh it's clouded um because of that. But yeah, somebody right. um I think somebody yeah, so, so basically they focused on their core markets now, which are they're the number one life insurer uh in the UK uh, in terms of just the the overall number of customers and been size their uh legal in general which somebody mentioned is bigger in some areas um it's certainly things like bulk purchase annuities and its asset management is, is much big area uh, arm is much bigger um but aviva is a much more diversified business it has it's much bigger in like the general insurance segment which is like the what you'd call property and casualty in america or or canada um and so it has, and it has um, <coughs> sort of high net worth businesses, all this kind of stuff is expanding as well. So it's much more diversified, um, I would say, than LNG, which I think is very much its its main sort of area of growth and business line. Is I felt it just when I compare the two, it's just a little bit too concentrated. And I do actually, I particularly like the management in charge of Aviva at the moment as well, which is kind of why I've gone for them. So though, those two factors. Um, a really good. I really like the, the, what I've seen in terms of capital allocation the last few years um, in what they've done with the shareholder returns and all the rest of it, um, and how they've been deploying capital. The acquisitions they've done since have been very targeted, um, uh, just ex- basically adding to existing or enhancing. Uh, very much, it's not they're not spurring off into something new. They're very much enhancing an area of the business that they already had established and they wanted to sort of grow. Do that segment, or it complements other areas of the business. It's been very focused, and uh, and I think, um, yeah, I'm just I'm just liking the management in the in the business. One of the, uh, one of the things I think is just it doesn't necessarily impact returns, but I think it's cool about um, UK stocks or potentially is like with Aviva. They were founded in 1696. 
even before yeah. the US was founded. <laughs> like you're never gonna see that. I think the oldest company I have know of in the US is AO Smith. Um, but I think that's always cool. You know, they yeah. they've been around for, for a while. It is a nice it is a nice uh, benefit. <laughs> nice to have that kind of history. You know, the business is the business is probably not going to disappear in terms of like demand for insurance is not going to disappear, is it? You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but but to kind of summarize, I kind of uh, I agree that I think that if you're looking um, to find value right now, I think that U.S. large cap is definitely overvalued. Mm. Um, th- there's some exceptions. There's a couple of companies that I mean, obviously, but I also think that for most of us. Um, going into mega caps or large caps is very difficult because basically what we're saying is that I know better than the Bill Ackman's, the, you know, so on all these massive hedge fund managers more than them and their teams do. I mean, you can often invest alongside them, but, um, and so I think it's, there's both been a massive sell-off in a lot of these, what we call in the U.S., you know, small caps or mid to small caps. Uh, both within the US, but also UK and, and Europe. And I think it creates an interesting opportunity. I think there's been maybe some price dislocation from fundamentals on a lot of these. Um, kind of like, you know, they're in one of the things I think you need to look at personally, my thought is what's going to be the driver for the valuation to come back to the stock or the price to return to the stock? Because, mm-hmm. you know, like, it doesn't. It do, it could be as simple as like they're going to be making so much money, they're just going to start buying back their stock, and that'll drive the price up, or they'll issue a dividend. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, a I saw patriots yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the chat, but um, but yeah, so I, I think that's it's an interesting. Uh, I, I do think that there's what would someone say treasure hunting. I think there's some treasures to be found in these in these areas. <laughs> Mm. Uh, there's Thomas in the chat, but he uh, said there was no tra- tra- treasure <laughs> in uh, what was that in the uh, in the uh, in uh, what's it called a- the AIM or um, the AIM, yeah, yeah, AIM. <laughs> so, uh, I-, I guess kind of with that said, I mean, yeah, um, I'm, I I think you're right on a lot of that, most of that probably, Andrew. I don't know if I'd agree with everything entirely, um, but. I think the the core lesson is there's value in all sorts of places. And as things run up in some areas, like we're seeing with a lot of like mega cap stuff, mm-hmm. I totally would agree there. Um, it, 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 it will require some extra digging perhaps to go and try and find value in different places that maybe are a little bit off the beaten path, especially as the market has been kind of heating up here in the U S after it went, pretty cold for a little while, or at least came back down to earth after a ridiculous like 2020 and 2021. Um, a lot of that fueled by rampant monetary policy. And now that a lot of the cool down was also um, fueled by the same, just in the opposite direction. So uh, I, I think it's always worth just exploring potential different avenues. Um, and at least in the case of the, of, of the UK market for, us us folks it's all in english so that makes it a little bit easier <laughs> so, though it so, is ifrs uh, accounting so yeah <laughs> you yeah. gotta adjust not, your mindset for that. <laughs> yeah right it's not it's not the same but you know it's uh it's a little bit easier than maybe some other foreign markets that might have great value but it just can be hard to wrap your head around it because you just don't understand one the culture and two the language so um you know they can make things a little bit difficult 
I think this is a really good primer though, James. I appreciate you taking the, uh, for pitching the idea and also putting together some of those, uh, um, compiling those graphics. Uh, cause, cause that would, I, I didn't realize that with, um, the way the uh, UK market is owned. Cause that, that's one of the questions I kind of had before, before this mm. going into it is like, who actually owns UK stocks? Um, and I did not expect to see what I saw. So that that, that was pretty yeah. interesting. So thanks for that. Um, I guess anything else from either of you guys uh, before we wrap up here um, on UK stocks or stocks in general, what do you got? Anything else? Well, we've got a, a good example of a, of an undervalued, UK stock coming up in the next firm discussions in the, as we touched Excellent on point. IWG <laughs> that Andrew is going to be expertly pitching. So uh, yeah, we'll look forward to that. Look out for that people. Stay tuned for that. That should be, should be going live in about a week from now, maybe a little over a week from now. Uh, once that's all um, put together and uh, we'll be posting quite soon. So stay tuned for that. Be sure to subscribe. And even if you don't care about firm discussions, which really is a mistake in my view, you should care about it. But if you don't, <laughs> we still got this show too. So subscribe for that. And maybe you'll see James and Andrew there again at some point. So um, regardless, thanks everyone for dropping by and be sure to check out all the other great stuff in the description below, including a link to our discord where you can keep the conversation going with other people who are interested in this sort of stuff, long-term value investing in the uh, ideally in the punch card uh, sort of, metaphor doctrine so uh but with all that said uh, thank you both for coming and thanks everyone for watching until next time thanks for having us thanks for tuning in to punch card investing the contents of this show should not be used as investment advice or as a recommendation to invest in a particular security Please consult with a licensed investment advisor if you need investment advice. All investments carry risk and the potential for monetary loss. Thank you and see you next week.